0: The transformation of sexual codes is a very, very serious thing. And I think our culture is hurtling down that, that railroad with no idea of where this will go and no idea of whether civilization will be, in any level, sustainable at the end. The
1: sexual revolution didn't occur in a vacuum, these ideas developed over time. Today, sexual politics dominate our world. Where are we headed and what can you do about it? You'll get answers today on The Mark Harrington Show. Activist Radio, The Mark Harrington Show, is brought to you by Created Equal, and you can support our work or subscribe to our podcast by going to MarkHarringtonshow.com. My guest today is Dr. Carl Truman and he is a noted Christian thought leader, also a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's authored several books. His latest is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He also writes for First Things. Uh, Dr. Truman, thanks for being on the program today. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Well, one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on is that you're uh, you're uh, one of our favorites here at Created Equal. We spent the summer, at least part, part of it, going through your video series uh, on your presentation, Makers of the Modern Revolution, which is part of a series on the uh, Grove City's uh, Great Lectures uh, YouTube page. And we found it very helpful because here at uh, Created Equal, obviously we're an anti-abortion pro-life group, but... We understand that abortion just didn't happen in a vacuum, that there's a reason why this is occurring, and it has a lot to do with the past, with the sexual revolution as it involved and related to to ethics, law, and culture, and history. And so we felt it was important that we cover your book as best as possible by watching your video series. So that's why I was interested in bringing you in, because I wanted to kind of get a, um, a little update on what's going on. So in the time that we have together, I just want to jump right into this. Um, Let me just ask you this. You you talk about the notion of the modern self in the
0: series and in your book. What do you mean by that? Yeah, good question. I think at the heart of the sort of topics you've raised already, sexual revolution, abortion, etc., there is a, a fundamental notion of what it means to be a human person to be a human being that is Mm -hmm. operating and I think that that notion has changed dramatically over the last five or six hundred years if you think if you imagine you were born in medieval Europe your identity would have been very fixed your identity would actually have been given to you basically by the outside world you'd have been born in one place you'd have lived in that place for the rest of your life you'd have died in that place you'd have been baptized married and buried in the same church Mm -hmm. Uh, everything about you, or most things about you would have been fixed we now live in a world where those external fixed things really no longer apply we Mm. tend to think of ourselves now as the masters of our own destiny Mm. i live three and a half four thousand miles away from where i was brought up in an entirely different Mm. continent entirely different country Mm. Uh, i perceive myself and i perceive the world around me as something that i have great freedom relative towards that i can choose that i can be whoever i want to be and it's that modern notion of the autonomous independent self that i think underlies so many of the ethical debates and discussions we're having today
1: you also go on to talk about the expressive expressive individualism Uh, is that different than the modern self or is that similar
0: No, I think it's another term, really, for the modern self. And I should probably qualify and say the modern Western self. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that the same model would apply in Russia or or China or India or Korea. We're really talking about Western Europe and and North America. And the expressive individual is the person who thinks of themselves as primarily constituted by their inner feelings, their Mm -hmm. own inner convictions, and who sees their authenticity as involving the ability to express those inward feelings outwardly and it's in doing that that we we find happiness Uh, and of course the the implication of that is that everybody else is either a problem to us or instrumental to our happiness Mm -hmm. that we find our happiness for ourselves and other people are useful to us to the extent that they can contribute to that sense of happiness
1: so how does that how does that contribute to what's going on in America and the Western world as far as the social issues go?
0: Well, if you look at uh, the the sexual revolution and look at the rise of sexual identity politics lbgtq plus mm-hmm. really at the core of sexual identity politics is this idea that I am constituted by my desires or inner feelings. If I have a desire a sexual desire for somebody of the same sex, then that is who I am. Mm-hmm. If you contrast that with Say ancient Greece, where there was a lot of homosexual activity, but nobody was identifying as a homosexual because they didn't think of their identity in terms of their desires, so that would be one aspect of expressive individualism. I know you're particularly interested uh, in the the abortion issue. Right. Uh, think about abortion. What does expressive individualism teach us or tilt us towards doing? I said earlier, regarding other people as instrumental to our happiness. So when the woman falls pregnant and has a child in her womb that uh, she thinks is going to bring great happiness to her life, then it's it's fine to bring it to term. But if the woman falls pregnant and feels that the child is going to inhibit her career, inhibit her ability to express herself, inhibit her freedom, then that child becomes an adversary, an enemy, and ripe, mm-hmm. of course, for abortion at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. My guest again is Dr. Carl Truman. We're talking about the uh, video series that is on the, um, the Grove City YouTube page, Life of the Mind, Great Lectures from the Grove, as well as his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, Dr. Truman, uh, let's uh, jump in. I want to go over just a couple of the, um, the uh, different parts of that video that you created there, Makers of the Modern Revolution. You talk about Freud's legacy and that sex is the foundation for human happiness and identity. If you would expound on that a bit.
0: Yeah, well, Freud is an absolutely critical person, I think, in terms of understanding the the intellectual genealogy of where we are today. Mm -hmm. Freud doesn't emerge from a vacuum. He comes uh, at the end of, of several centuries where, Human beings had, well, certainly Western thinkers had become increasingly preoccupied with inner psychology as defining who we are. So you have the romantic movement that sees our our inner feelings as determining, defining who we are. Freud is a sort of heir of the romantics in that he agrees that it's that inner space that's important for our identity, but he sees it as a dark sexual place. It's really Mm -hmm. defined by our dark. Un- unmentionable sexual desires and in doing that what freud does is he shifts sexual desire to to the center of what it means to be a person he makes sexual desire an identity sex if you like ceases to be an activity that you do <clears throat> and becomes that which you are so freud is is critical now people listening to this podcast might say yeah but you know nobody reads freud today etc cetera, etc cetera. But Freud's message is the message that's preached by 80% of the commercials we watch, 80% mm-hmm. of the movies we watch. The mm-hmm. idea that you are your sexual desires and your happiness is constituted by fulfilling those sexual desires is now common currency in our culture.
1: Dr. Truman's book, you can pick it up at uh, the Christian book Stores, uh online. Christianbook.com is one of them where you can pick up the book. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He's my guest today. Uh, Dr. Truman, I want to go on to one of these uh, the videos, video number seven. You talk about sexual politics and you talk about how sexual codes are now seen as the tools of the oppressors. Uh, and in order to uh, dismantle those codes, that is at the heart of the political revolution. We see that happening now. It's just at light speed after the Obergefell decision of 2015. If, would you expound on that? And where do you think this is headed?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, obviously, it connects to what I've just said about Freud. If you think right. about it, if your sexual desires are constitutive of who you are, then that means that sexual codes, the laws by which society Mm -hmm. regulates itself sexually, are not so much laws about behavior as they are laws about who you are allowed to be by the society in which you live. So it's inevitable once the Freudian message had been sort of absorbed into the culture that sexual identity would move to the center of of political struggles. And that's what I think we're witnessing today. Uh, We've seen it with uh, the... the, uh, the lesbian and the gay movement now we're seeing, but the transgender and, and the queer movement. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are. Where is it heading? I, I think it's very disturbing. Uh, right. One of the things that <laughs> Freud, I think, gets right is that Freud, in his in his wonderful essay, uh, Civilization is Discontents," Freud makes the case, and it makes quite a compelling case, I think, for saying that sexual codes lie at the heart of civilization. It's sexual codes that define the family. It's sexual codes mm-hmm. that really lie at the heart of how we relate to each other as human beings, and that makes them important. It means that when you change sexual codes, you are changing some of the fundamental essence of civilization. Debates about sexual codes, if you like, are not debates about marginal rates of income tax. People can have strong convictions about income tax, mm-hmm. but a difference between 20% and 25% is not as great as the difference between believing that marriage is between one man and one woman and believing that marriage is a relationship that can be defined by the contracting parties in whichever way they wish. The transformation of sexual codes is a very, very serious thing. And I think our culture is hurtling down that that railroad with no idea of where this will go and no idea of whether civilization will be in any level sustainable at the end.
1: In video eight of your series, uh, The Modern uh, Makers of the Modern Revolution, you talk about abortion uh, a little bit in that. You talk about Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and you refer to the quote, mystery passage, unquote, and how that affects personhood. If you would expound on that, what did you mean by the mystery passage? This is Dr., or, or this is uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote for the majority in P- Planned Parent versus Casey.
0: Yeah, there is this famous passage. It's quoted all the time now, particularly by people like me, I guess, where uh, the majority, and it's, it's really Anthony Kennedy authoring this, uh, Anthony Kennedy argues really that, that personhood and happiness are not things that the state can have any interest in defining. That has to be left up to the individual. It's a passage of profound mysticism, I would say, and it seems to have no real purchase on reality and flies in the face of common sense. Uh, The government has every interest in defining personhood. That's what allows us to have codes about murder and things like this. It's really, I think, a little bit of emotional special pleading on the part of Justice Kennedy that allows the majority to avoid taking the correct stand in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case.
1: And so how does that affect person or the person of the unborn?
0: Well, they have no personhood. Uh, I I mean, one of the things that there's an implication, and I'm I'm not sure that Anthony Kennedy would have connected these dots. But it seems to me that what it does is it denies personhood to anybody who isn't self-conscious in some significant way. And Mm -hmm. that, of course, not only has implications for the unborn, it also has implications at the other end of life when you have somebody struggling with dementia. If personhood and happiness depend upon self-consciousness, then the extremes of life are profoundly vulnerable at that point. That's a point that's been made very powerfully by my friend Carter Sneed in his uh, recent book, What It Means to Be Human, that I would recommend to your listeners to get Mm -hmm. hold of and read. Mm -hmm.
1: Again, I'm talking to Dr. Carl Truman. You can watch the video series uh, on the Life of the Mind, Great Lectures from the Grove. That's the YouTube channel and the presentation is Makers of the Modern Revolution. Uh, Dr. Truman, in, uh, on video eight, talking a little more about abortion and personhood, you reference uh, Peter Singer, who's a professor at Princeton University. Sits on the uh, bioethics uh, board, I think, there. And you talk about how well, he's an animal rights activist, among other things. And you talk about how he believes there is no such thing as human exceptionalism. And that personal happiness is the key to whether the unborn deserve rights or not. Uh, if, if you would, elaborate on on
0: uh, Peter Singer and his worldview. Yeah, Singer is an interesting character. I, I teach him I I do a class on Peter Singer each year in one of my courses at Grove and Uh don't get me wrong when I say I like Singer it's not that I like his views what I appreciate about Peter Singer is he's remarkably consistent yeah he writes very clearly and he does not hesitate to draw the logical clear conclusions from the premises that he sets forward Singer makes I think a good point in, in arguing that human exceptionalism was ultimately grounded in a a theological view of the world. Uh, Singer sees human exceptionalism in terms of how it's been embodied in philosophies as really parasitic upon the Jewish or the Christian idea that human beings are made in the image of God and have certain Mm -hmm. tasks placed upon them and a certain authority given to them that is not given to other creatures. And Singer then makes the point, well, that is not the consensus position of society anymore. We're not a Christian society in that sense. And therefore, mm-hmm. we can't use such arguments for human exceptionalism. And what does that mean? It means that human beings, well, sounds a truism. We're not exceptional. We're just one form of animal in amongst many others. And therefore, why should we argue that we should have special privileges or special rights mm-hmm. relative to, to others? Uh, Famous statement by the the chief executive of PETA some years ago: uh, uh, "A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy." That sort of captures very much in a popular way what mm. Singer is trying to do. And having said that, he then tries to rebuild his ethics, as you pointed out in the question, on the grounds of well, okay, if we take certain actions, do they lead to greater amount of happiness or lesser amount of happiness? Uh, if the child is born. Uh, with disabilities, for example, and right. the parents still rejoice in the birth of the child and want to bring the child up, then that's great. The child should be allowed to live at that point. If the parents are devastated by this and think that bringing up a child with disabilities is going to harm their happiness, then it's okay to euthanize the child at that point because, touching on Anthony Kenny, the child is not a person. The child mm-hmm. does not have a degree of self-consciousness at that point that would allow it to, to be considered to be a person.
1: Right. And Singer makes the case in practical ethics that he makes the case that uh, we should ascribe rights of personhood at sentience, whether they're human or not. And he would say that that actually takes place 28 days after birth uh, for human beings. So he would put them on the level with any other, you know, part of the creation, human or otherwise. So it's an interesting argument. But I guess if you don't believe in the fact that we are all made in the image of God, that's probably where you end up. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Truman, I'd like to ask you a couple contemporary questions. We've got this Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case. It's going to be handed down by the Supreme Court maybe as early as spring, but as late as the summer. Do you see any further expectations or uh, change or signals that the court might be sending on the issue of personhood or not because casey's at the center of a lot of the discussions amongst the justices and others
0: yeah i've not seen that thus far i mean i will rejoice of course if roe v wade is overturned and and i think the very existence of the dobbs case indicates how public opinion has shifted in the united states Mm -hmm. probably in in large part as a result of the development of sonograms and things like that where the visuals yeah it's a kind of intuitive. Yeah, we intuitively see the child in the womb as a person now. We may not have the philosophy for doing that. So pragmatically, I'm very pleased with the way things are going. Philosophically, I think the notion of personhood underlying Casey, that's part of our broader culture. I don't think that's right. going anywhere soon. Right. Agreed.
1: Agreed. <laughs> uh, so let let me ask you this. The, uh, since you wrote the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, it's been a little while since that was released. Do you see any hope since you've written that book? I mean, have, have there been changes, positive changes uh,
0: regarding that or no? I've been I've been very encouraged by the reception of the book. I okay. expected a lot more hostility than I received. Okay. And I've been encouraged that I, you know, some of the most moving letters I've had have been from parents of children who are struggling with the sexual revolution stuff, the LGBTQ stuff, saying mm-hmm. that the book has has enabled them to, to have conversations with their children they've not been able to have before. So I've been encouraged in a small way on that front. I, I think, though, the the power of the culture is so great mm-hmm. that, you know, if anything, yeah. my book functions as it explains the culture but it's not transforming the culture in any way. The forces driving our culture are are much greater than any single book or argument could ever address.
1: Well, we agree with you there. It doesn't mean we don't uh, keep up the fight and and continue to, to point to the truth and make our case in the public square. Last question, where do you think we're headed in the short term and how do you believe that the church should be responding to what's going on?
0: Yeah, in the short term, I think we have to, I, I, I'm, this sounds very. I'm a sort of cheerful pessimist. I'm resigned to the fact that I'm probably going to lose every cultural battle I I fight in my lifetime. But Likewise. I'm still gonna fight him. Like, Likewise, like, you know, like Theoden, I'm still going to go onto the field of battle, even though I know I'm going to lose. Uh-huh. Uh, but I. But I also think we need to remember that our world is interesting. That we, we now think in such short term ways. You think of a man who started on the day one of the building of Cologne Cathedral as he laid the first foundation stone, he would have known that he was never going to worship in that building. He was never going to see it completed. And I think our generation need to get over the idea that we need to win every battle in the next week or six months and realize what we're doing today is, is building for the future. And so I would add that the church on that front needs to be the church. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep living a disciplined Christian life. Keep witnessing to the world that there is a way to live to the beat of a different drum.
1: My guest today has been Dr. Carl Truman, and he is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. And he's written several books, one uh, most recently, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. You can pick that book up at christianbook.com. I also encourage you to uh, Watch the video series, which is uh, on the Life of the Mind Great Lectures from the Grove, which is the Grove City YouTube page. And uh, one of his presentations there is Makers of the Modern Revolution. Uh, thank you, Dr. Truman, for being on the program. Thanks for having me on. Well, friends, I hope you uh, enjoyed listening to Dr. Carl Thompson, who I would consider one of America's foremost Christian apologists, and intellectuals, and what I really liked about Carl Thompson or or Carl Truman's position is that, uh, you know, all the issues that we're facing, the social issues, if you will, the culture war issues, uh, did not happen in a vacuum. In other words, we as Christians need to have a well-rounded worldview in order to deal with these, and I think that's what separates created equal from a lot of other anti-abortion organizations. Yes, we fight against abortion. Yes, we want to end abortion. We are focused on that particular injustice. But we understand that there are a lot of other contributing factors that play into the fact that abortion is legal in America. Uh, One of those is what's currently going on with the COVID pandemic, specifically the mandates that are being handed down by the federal government, by mayors across America. And this is why I often speak about it, because I believe that the mandates are unconstitutional, they're immoral, and therefore they need to be stood against because it does affect our ability to fight abortion. How is that? Well, first of all, the uh, the vaccines were derived by the use of aborted fetal cells. In other words, the shot, the injection, is tainted by abortion. Therefore, it's off limits for Christians to take, number one. Number two, it, uh, we've sh- sh- shown that there are adverse effects to it. In other words, people are dying. They're having adverse reactions, specifically when it comes to pregnancy, we are now seeing that over 80 percent of women who are pregnant in the first and second trimester of pregnancy who take the vaccine lose their pregnancies. They have miscarriages. That's not pro-life to support a vaccine that causes miscarriage. And then finally, the threat against the First Amendment. And that is a big, big thing. We cannot have uh, the end of abortion without freedom of expression. There is no social reform without Freedom of speech. So that's why Created Equal tries to tackle all of these issues, still focusing primarily on abortion. And so, folks, I want you to take action. And here's how you can. On January 22nd, yours truly, along with the Created Equal team, will be in Washington, D.C. We'll be displaying our Jumbotron TV, showing first trimester and second trimester aborted babies to the marchers as they pass by. Hundreds of thousands. Of individuals be exposed to the truth about abortion. We'll be in Washington and we ask you to pray for us. Pray that we reach more and more people with the truth of abortion and the gospel. Secondarily, you can listen to the podcast, The Mark Harrington Show, 24 7 by picking it up on any of the popular podcasting platforms. And you can go to markharringtonshow.com to check those out. And then finally, Leave a comment, submit a comment, suggest a topic for the program. You can do that by clicking on the tab on the right-hand side of the page at MarkHarringtonShow.com. So we'll see you next time. God bless you. God bless America. And remember America to bless God.